This morning, um, I, I have the privilege to, to talk to, through Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it's kind of interesting to me that uh, this morning on my way here, I actually dumped four cups of coffee out in my truck and on my arm and burnt myself and doused my truck in coffee this morning. And uh, it totally impacted my attitude. And uh, I thought it's just no coincidence that as we get into this portion on prayer, and also talking about the Lord's will and um, Him knowing what we need without us even knowing and going to Him, trusting that He knows what we need more than we, what we do. And apparently the Lord knew I needed four cups of coffee all over my truck and my arm this morning. But um, it is kind of interesting that as we get into this this morning, um, that I had this circumstance and I just really felt like the Lord's using it to kind of prompt something in my own heart. and. As we get into the Lord's Prayer this morning, I think it would be um, just horrible for us to teach through this and talk about it um, and only look at it as a text in the Bible and just something that we can memorize and not actually engage it in a real way and figure out how it impacts our life and how it actually shapes and molds the way we pray. And, uh, and so as we get into this text this morning, I just challenge you to go before the Lord this morning and ask him to soften your heart and um, speak to you this morning through his word, because I believe that he wants to do that. So let's pray and then we'll dive into it. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for even spilled cups of coffee, um, Lord, and just the way you use circumstances in our life to um, kind of prod us sometimes and speak to us. And I just pray, Jesus, as there's so many circumstances swirling around us in our lives right now, um, Lord, that we would not look at these as um, things that are just prohibiting us and frustrating us. But um, Lord, can we see you in the midst of all of this and know that Jesus, you are on the throne and you are with us. You have drawn near to us, Lord. And I just pray for each of those that are out there this morning watching this. Um, God, that you would draw near to them, that you would comfort them in this time, um, Lord, in all their trials and the frustrations and the ins and outs of life, would you draw near this morning, remind them, Jesus, that you aren't some far off God, but you're actually with us here and now, Jesus. As we talk about prayer this morning, I pray that you just would reorientate our hearts before you, Jesus, that you'd show us what's important and what things we can let go of. And Jesus, that we want to latch onto you this morning is the most important thing in our life. And uh, I pray, Jesus, that you'd transcend uh, these camera lenses and these computer screens and you'd speak to us and touch our hearts this morning in your name. Amen. Awesome. Uh, if you guys would turn to Matthew chapter 6 with me. Uh, last week we ended at verse 8, and this week I want to pick up, and we're just going to talk through verses 9 and 10. Um, but before we get into that, um, as, as we've been studying through uh, Jesus' most famous sermon, uh, this morning we get to this passage that is like the most iconic prayer that Jesus prayed. And um, if there's a handful of passages in the Bible that kind of everybody knows this would be one of them. And we find this passage, the, this prayer, in two different sections of Scripture. We find it once in Matthew 6, where we're at now during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then we also find it in Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, the context is a bit different. Uh, Jesus' disciples come to him, and they ask Jesus how it is that they should pray. Uh, but they say to Jesus, 
just like John taught his disciples to pray, will you teach us? And it's really interesting that uh, what, what they're looking for is how their teacher would actually instruct them to pray. Teach them to pray as you do is kind of the way they're approaching Jesus. And so understanding that in Jewish culture, uh, the followers of a rabbi would pray like that rabbi. And so just as John the Baptist had taught his followers to pray, the disciples are asking Jesus how it is that they're to pray. Like, how, how do you pray, Jesus? How do you want us to pray? We want to follow after you. You teach us how it is you pray. And I, I think it's really interesting that this is then kind of the overflow of that. Um, but it's important for us to understand as we dive into this, that though Jesus is teaching them some elements that are important with regards to prayer, it's not as though Jesus is giving them some formula. He's not just breaking it down saying, you need to just memorize this passage. And when you pray, this is just what you pray for and creating some sort of robotic prayer out of this passage. Um, this isn't the only model that we should pray uh, for the rest of our, the days of our lives. And it's not as if prayer only works if we pray this way, but Jesus is simply restating what's important in prayer to his followers, to the disciples. And some of the things he's saying are things that he's already mentioned. It's sort of a reiteration for the disciples from other things he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And so for the disciples, some of this, again, it could be a reiteration, but Jesus is teaching them what's important. So I don't want to leave today thinking that, well, if we just pray like this model, then everything's going to be fine. And that's all God's asking of us. Jesus didn't give this as our only model to prayer. In fact, prayer uh, for Jesus was more about intimacy with our Father, as we talked about last week, than it was about getting the form and the methods dialed um, in the structure to our prayers. And so... Um, I, I will say this though, uh, in third grade, I memorized this passage at a private school and it has stuck with me for, um, whatever, 30 some years of my life that I haven't forgotten it. And when I'm often in a season where I don't know how to pray or I don't know what to pray, um, or I'm frustrated or I'm not really sure what to say, um, this is an amazing passage for me to go back through and begin to pray through because there's something so grounding about this prayer that Jesus was teaching his disciples. There's something about, about it that sort of reorients us and it brings us back to center. And that, that really is something about prayer that always astounds me, that there's two things that happen in prayer. One is that we grow in intimacy with our dad, with the father. But two, there's sort of a reorientation of our priorities that happens in the midst of prayer. When we pray, we often come to God only with petitions. It's like that's the way we've been taught to pray. So we just come to God to get things. We're looking for answers. We want God to do certain things in our life or cause things to happen. And so we often pray in order to have our ex expectations met. But what I find is that when I dedicate time to sitting and taking things to the Lord, I often find that my agenda and my uh, expectations get completely reoriented in the midst of my prayer time with him. And this is one of the most powerful aspects of prayer to me. It's this reminder of who, where, and how, and what of prayer. And so to give you a little context here, the, the section of scripture in, in Matthew is still part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's following Jesus' teaching to his disciples on how they had to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious thought leaders of the day um, if they hoped to be part of his great kingdom. 
And so he's compared and contrasted like their perceived righteousness with actual righteousness over and again. You've heard it said, but I'd say to you. And he continues to um, uh, contrast these things throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And then he compared the, the way in which they prayed with how citizens of the, of the, the kingdom, his kingdom, ought to, ought to actually pray. And so they, he says that they loved to be seen by others. And the reality is that we ought to spend most of our time in private. He says that that they used fancy words and phrases. And the reality is that we ought to use everyday language and as described by Jesus, like we can approach him however. They they seem to want to persuade and to convince this distant God who needed to be impressed in order to listen to them. But we, as people of the kingdom, ought to pray with this, this bold humility like uh, of children who are certain that we have full access to the Father in heaven, who, who just so happens to be ruling and reigning over the universe from heaven above. And so last week, we looked at what it means to say to our Heavenly Dad that we want what He wants more than we want what we want. And the good news is that Jesus didn't just tell us to do that. He actually did that Himself. And the even greater news is that what God wanted was to defeat sin and death and to resurrect his son from the grave. And so what he wants is so much better than what you and I desire, what we want. And so in verse 8, leading into 9 and 10 there, uh, Jesus says, so do not be like them. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So who is the them that Jesus is talking about? It's the Pharisees and the hypocrites that it refers to in the passages leading up to this, the the religious elite of Jesus's day who did all of their religious acts for basically three reasons. One, to get noticed by others. Two, uh, to get what they wanted from God. And three, to earn their way to God through their religious acts. And Jesus says, don't be like them. for, For God knows what you need before you even ask him. And so the implication here is that God will give you exactly what he knows that you need. And we can trust him in that. And so this week, I want to look at this related request that Jesus gives them. It seems almost synonymous, sort of, but introduces to us this really important concept of what it looks like to say to God that we don't want what we want, but we want what he wants. We want his kingdom to advance. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. So look at... Uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says this. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, if you notice kind of the way this cascades down, it's pretty amazing. Like what he's saying right off the bat, one, that we must pray. That, that when you pray, um, pray in this way. Um, But he says, don't pray like everybody else. Like we have to know who we're actually praying to. And it's so rich when you think about these two words, our father, as Jesus kicks it off there. Pray then in this way, our father. this, this, This word our speaks of the community of faith. Like this is a collective. Like our prayer life should encompass the entire family of God. Like prayer is this collective opportunity that we participate in together to go to our Father and to 
too often I think that in my own life I'm I'm guilty of these me-centered prayers like me and my needs first and only instead of thinking about the community the collective of the followers of Jesus but remember that there's something about this that's also very reorienting it's reminding us of the who we're praying to and what we're praying for and so Jesus says our father so the this word our and then father Um, Father implies this relationship. Like most people pray to a God that's distant, but we pray to one that's close, one that's actually near to us, one that's more like a true father than just some distant religious figure that we're praying to. But, But listen to this as well. There's something in this word father that implies that we actually know him. Now, I would never say that God only hears the prayers of those who believe and follow Jesus. But I think God hears the prayers, um, of course, of the farthest off of the far. However, this term father and the way that Jesus uses it implies that we know him. In fact, none of the prayer Jesus lays out here makes sense for anybody other than the follower of Jesus because it all starts to sound kind of odd. Like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Like nobody who doesn't know Jesus even people who do don't understand some of these some of the language he's using but nobody who doesn't know Jesus doesn't really understand um, really understands what Jesus is saying and, and the follower of Jesus is the only one that believes that God is actually our father and, and they become his sons and his daughters actually by way of adoption through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is a believer's prayer. In John 14, Jesus says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Jesus himself goes to the Father. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. How can you ask for something in Jesus' name without first believing in Jesus? How can you pray to a father without first acknowledging that he is your heavenly father? So it it implies that in, in praying this, you actually believe what it is that you're praying, who it is that you're praying to, who he is, what we're praying for. And Jesus goes on to say, our father, and then he says, who's in heaven. And so then this word heaven it speaks of like God's position as sovereign, um, that, that he's on heaven's throne, that he is worthy of our faith, that he's this able God, the only God that has a place, a seat, a throne in heaven. And so all of this points to him as being the only way, the only God. So understand what's being heard by those that are sitting here listening to Jesus. There, there's the disciples who Jesus is talking directly to, And what they're hearing is the reminder that when they pray, they're talking to the one and only God, who's their real heavenly father, and there is no other. But then there's these bystanders standing around, some of them the religious folks and other Jews, and the crowd that's listening as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and potentially, again, even some of the religious leaders. And what they're hearing uh, is that the, the God Jesus is speaking of is the one true God. There's a, a major statement that Jesus is making in this. He's the one true God, the one who reigns in heaven and reigns on earth. And there's something about this prayer that requires faith. And Jesus is teaching them to pray in faith to God their Father who's in heaven. Uh, faithlessness honestly has no place in our prayer lives. 
We, we are a people of faith and we petition God, we seek God in faith. And so when we know how trustworthy and how powerful God actually is, then we'll really want others to know how great he is and we will really want his name to be praised far and wide. And so as Jesus says, goes on to say, hallowed be his name, um, I, I read that phrase and I think to myself, like, I, I don't often speak like that. Maybe I've never spoken like that before. Um, I'm not sure when the last time I spoke in Old English was, but when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, what in the world does Jesus mean by that? Um, he, he meant to regard as holy. He, he meant to honor. And there's a couple really awesome things about the verbiage that Jesus uses. First and foremost, in our prayers, we need to honor the Lord. We need to praise him. Prayer isn't always about requests. It's also about exalting God himself. It's about praising him, acknowledging who he is and where he is. But Jesus's use of the word your, when he says your name, makes this very personal for us. Again, he, he's not a distant God. He's close to us. He's yours. And Jesus didn't say hallowed be God's name, but he specifically uses the word as in to, to remind us that he is one with us, that he's not just the God, he's actually our God. And this is really good news to the follower of Jesus. He's not just distant, he's here and he's with. And so when we realize how honorable he is, hallowed be his name, how greatly to be praised God actually is, we will then want his will over ours because we know who he is. We'll want his kingdom to rule and reign more than we'll want any of the kingdoms of this earth that will hallow his name. And that will cause more people to actually know God, to know him as our father in heaven. It's such a beautiful prayer when you think about the way Jesus is phrasing, is phrasing this. Um, but Jesus goes on in verse 10 and he says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know about you, but um, it's easy to read this and think, um, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> and I, I think in order to answer this, there's a couple things that we have to know. And so this is kind of how I want to shape the rest of uh, the time this morning. Uh, one is that we need to know what the kingdom of God is, if we're going to pray this. Um, two, we need to know what the impact and the purpose of asking for it to come here actually is. And so the, the first question is, what is the kingdom of God? Um, I feel like we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks. Uh, when we started this series, we talked about um, this idea of the kingdom of God and what his kingdom was. Um, but I also know that many of us that are tuning in this morning uh, that live in America have this weird relationship with the idea of a kingdom. Like it, less than 300 years ago, um, we actually fought to bring ourselves out from underneath the reign of a kingdom in America. And so when we look around the world today, we don't have really a ton of amazing examples of functioning kings and kingdoms anywhere. The, the UK isn't really a kingdom, and its royalty functions more as reality TV celebrities than, it do, than they do actually kings over a kingdom as actual rulers. Um, there's uh, Monaco has a king of sorts, but some of you guys watching this morning actually have more property than is bigger than the country of Monaco itself. And we have 
too many examples on this earth today of king-like figures operating as dictator-type leaders and keeping their people oppressed. And so that's sort of our context when we talk about kings and kingdoms. As we think of dictators and rulers, we think of these heavy-fisted people and these that are, that are for, like their people are living under oppression and being forced to do things and live a way that they don't necessarily want to. And yet, deep down within us, I think it's so interesting that we have this longing to actually be part of a kingdom with, with, with this king as a ruler. Like there's something in us that desires for that, desires that, but we've actually never seen it modeled properly for us. And so uh, I want to keep this brief, but there's tons of books and plenty of online material that you can go read. Um, that would tell you that the kingdom of God is sort of the central theme all throughout scripture. Uh, in fact, some of the most respectable and knowledgeable biblical theologians uh, see it as the central theme that holds all the scriptures together, this idea of the kingdom being preached, God's kingdom. Uh, and Martin Lloyd-Jones stated it simply, the key to the history of the world, um, the key to the history of the world is the kingdom of God. And we, we see it in the way the, the Bible begins and in the way the Bible ends, with God ruling perfectly over his people in a place that's full of his reign. So in between, there's this like struggle that goes on between the kingdom of this world and God's kingdom. And we see this battle back and forth all throughout scripture. You see this kingdom longed for, and then you see it continually tainted and tarnished in this narrative of God's people throughout scripture. Um, and throughout the, the Israelites' story in the Old Testament. We see it, uh, the, the, this kingdom promised, and then when you read the writing of the prophets in the Old Testament, you can almost feel their longing for the coming kingdom, that this kingdom that will be established, that there's something that they were looking forward to, and then Jesus comes onto the scene. And it's his primary teaching topic. He talks about this kingdom, and it's actually here and now. And, and um, he, he continually announces that it's coming, that the kingdom has come near to people, that it's not just near, but it's amongst them. And Jesus then performs all these signs and wonders and miracles to show the power of this kingdom that he's preaching. And he teaches these parables to explain the kingdom's nature, like how it functions. And he teaches the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying as this sort of manifesto of this new kingdom that he's established, that he's brought. And the Romans then later agree to put Jesus to death partially because it looks like there's this insurrection against the kingdom of Rome and the kingship of Caesar. And so it's everywhere in life in the teaching of Jesus. 55 times Jesus speaks of it in the Gospel of Matthew alone. More than 120 times across all four Gospels, Jesus refers to this kingdom. And so if we put all of this together, like what is it? And again, like many theologians have said, given these like lengthy definitions to what the kingdom is, but they all pretty much have the same exact basic three ingredients. And so I want to use this as sort of the working definition today, but I realize that it's not an extensive list and that there's much more that probably can be said of the kingdom of God. But the, West, the best way that I've heard it defined is the kingdom of God is God's place in God or God's people in God's place experiencing God's full rule and God's full reign. And so when we say God's people, 
um, if we think back through scripture, if we look at the, the whole narrative, um, when we say we, we define God's people um, in Eden, it was this like covenant family in the Garden of Eden. In the Old Testament, it was God's covenant people, the Israelites. In the New Testament, it's all of his people who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. And otherwise, it's, it's referred to as the church in the New Testament. In heaven, it will be all of those from every tribe and tongue and nation and every generation that has been saved by grace through faith. Like, this is God's people. And so, there, there's always in life the, this incomplete feeling to the kingdom in terms of his people because it also numbers all of those who have gone before and all of those that he'll actually save in the future. And so when we talk about God's people, we're talking about at this point, all of those that would put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ are his people. When we say God's place, like if we look back in scripture, we go to the Garden of Eden, um, Eden itself was sort of the place. And then we see like much of the Old Testament uh, narrative is the people trying to get to and protect the promised land, um, which is supposed to house the people of God. So this place that they're going, this promised land. And then in the Gospels, basically everywhere Jesus goes, it comes near to all who come near to him. The kingdom is there. And then the rest of the New Testament, you see how this kingdom is sort of spreads out. And it isn't just one pocket of God's presence, but it's the, the people of God traveling all throughout the world, that they are the temples of the Holy Spirit. They take the kingdom with them wherever it is they go. And this is why we, we still send these cross-cultural missionaries, as you saw before um, the, the message this morning, our own missionaries that are in town now. This is why we send them across the globe globally because they're literally taking the kingdom with them where they go. And in eternity, one day on the other side of this life, um, it will be the, this God's place will be this new heavens and this new earth, the, this new Jerusalem that comes down as this holy city that his people begin to inhabit. And so when we say God's perfect rule and God's reign, um, if we think like pre-fall before sin in the garden, that's it. Like God's perfect rule, God's perfect reign, the way God intended for things to function. And so there's moments throughout scripture of like God's miraculous intervention throughout the Old Testament. And, and then you hear even in the prophets and their writings like this longing um, for God's perfect rule. And so when, when Jesus arrives, we see it in his life, that Jesus is able to resist sin every time, that Jesus is able to heal all afflictions every time, that, that he has absolute authority even over the forces of nature, that there's something supernatural happening through Jesus on this earth. And here is where we sort of need to watch and be aware because he doesn't rule and reign like an ordinary king. And this is the part where we talk about this upside down kingdom. It's not like our context of a king and a kingdom. So all of his followers want him to do that. They want him to rule like the king of the kingdom that they know of. And so if, if you've noticed um, the, the questions of his followers throughout his ministry, they say things like, is it time for you to rule Israel yet? Is it time? Like, how about now? Like, can we rule with you? Can we have a little throne? Like, can I sit at your right, Jesus? You get the big one, obviously, but can I just have a little piece of it? <clears throat> and then Jesus warns us again and again that while his kingdom is near and at hand, 
and evident to them that, that, that it's present in and through Jesus, it's also not all of it. And, and, and so um, we, we often talk about the kingdom of God being both already and not yet. Like we have like one foot in and one, one foot on this earth and one foot in heaven. And so it's interesting, this sort of shapes our prayers. Uh, the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. That Jesus is able to say that the kingdom is within us in Luke 17, and that it's not of this place or of this world in John 18. And then in Luke 19, Jesus tells us that this parable because he's worried that people are starting to think that the fullness of the kingdom was going to appear immediately. Um, one commentator that I read said that, um, that it's something that contains both a future glory and a present reality. There are two comings of the kingdom because there's actually two comings of the king. And so the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, experiencing God's full rule and his reign. And there's this element to that that is already now. That, and there's this element of, of that which is um, also not yet. And something that we're actually longing for, that as the followers of Jesus that we're waiting for, that we anticipate, which brings us to this really important press, uh, question. Like, why would we pray this prayer? Like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if it's already but not yet. If the rule and the reign of Jesus is something that's already established and will definitely come about in its fullness, why pray for his kingdom to come? And there's two reasons that I want to challenge us to pray this way. One, uh, when we pray your kingdom come, it actually creates this purpose and expectation for the here and now. And two, it, it creates a, a hope and a longing for this kingdom that's to come. Uh, within us. <clears throat> so first, it creates a purpose and expectation for the here and now. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, like our hearts are literally crying out in acknowledgement that this world is not what it ought to be yet. That, that the kingdoms of the world are cruel, that they're unjust, that they're unfulfilling, that people will never be happy. And we're asking God to bring touches, glimpses of this heavenly rule to our earth now. One of my favorite writers um, and, and pastors of this last century or so was a man named Eugene Peterson, which some of you have read his stuff. And um, as one of his many like writing projects that he took on in his lifetime, um, he sought out to write, translate the scripture into an everyday language translation of the Bible. And uh, it, his hope was that it would be more engaging and more meaningful um, for the everyday person's Bible reading to help them understand. It wasn't given as something that was supposed to replace um, like legitimate translations of the Bible, but something that could supplement, something that you could use to read alongside of. And I like unashamedly use it often in my private time with the Lord as I'm reading through my ESV or the NASB and I need understanding on something, I'll go and I'll read what the way Eugene translated it in the message. Um, and I often use it as a commentary even when I'm studying, but I, I feel like Eugene sort of captured this passage really interestingly in the message. He said, um, set the world right, do what's best, as above, so below. And uh, 
that's really what we're asking in this prayer. Like, God, set our world right. Like, the world is messed up and it needs you. Make it right, Lord. It's not right as it is now, and we all know that. We're fully aware of that. But the way it is above brings some of that before us here and now. Like, we long to see these glimpses of God, these touches of God's absolute rule and his reign in the here and now of our everyday lives. Like where the sick are healed, as scripture says, where sin is resisted, where broken relationships become restored, where, where injustice is um, dismantled. Uh, this isn't just a plea, like it, it's a purpose. Like when I look at my relationship with Jesus and I spend time in prayer with him, like these are some of the things that I bring before him. God, let me see this now. Like you say, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. Uh, or, sorry, raise the dead, cast out demons, heal the sick. And um, and we want to see that here and now. And that's a portion of God's kingdom sort of coming to earth and moving through his people. But we are God's people. You and I, we're God's people. And, and this is, in, in a very real sense, like God's place, like here amongst his people. Not necessarily this earth, but united with us in heart like those that would call upon the name of Jesus live within a kingdom attached to a king that isn't physically present with here here with us now but is with us in spirit uh, in his holy spirit that he sent us and this isn't his only place which is really interesting <clears throat> but think about this that through us God has this tremendous presence in the city of Coeur d'Alene right now through his church, through his people, that, that we're called to be these ambassadors of the kingdom here and now. And this prayer reminds us of that. We, we, pray, we pray far more of God's rule and reign in our lives. This is a prayer asking for greater holiness and spiritual power. And secondly, um, he says, your kingdom come. And, and the second part is that it, it creates this hope and a longing for the kingdom to come. Like we want to see some of that here and now, but we also know that there's a day that will come in eternity when we will see the fullness of it. And so this is sort of the prayer of like a traveler, a foreigner in this world, that, that we're longing for God to move in the here and now, but knowing ultimately that the fullness of God will only be experienced in eternity, and that is hope for you and I, that one day God will make it right, that in heaven it will be the same as it is on earth. So picture, if you look at Revelation 21, the first five verses of this chapter are, are paint this amazing picture for us. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Amen. I want to close with this. Like while we wait for that day, 
we can actually be completely confident as, as we ask for God's kingdom to come in the here and now, in the meanwhile. If you look at Luke 12, 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We are God's people in God's place, asking for the fullness of God's rule and his reign in our lives. And our real hope and our real prayer is that knowing and believing this would actually make us a more faithful praying people. It would be so lame if we learned all the theology of Jesus' way of prayer, but it didn't actually change the way we prayed. Like my, my greatest fear going into this morning is that you would just hear the verse that you've already memorized, that you would read through it again, and you know, you'd hear some great points, but then you'd leave unchanged, unscathed. And I would pray this morning that as we read through this, that there's something in you that would come alive, that would desire to spend time with your Father, the growing intimacy and talking with Him in prayer, and to begin to pray these prayers of faith, like your kingdom come, your will be done. There's something very reorienting about this prayer, that we, we come to God with like, God, you know my bank account, and I don't have any money in it. Like, we come to Him with these petitions, God, you know that, my marriage stinks. You know, God, that this relationship is off. You know, God, that I lost my job. And we're seeking him to try to answer the, these, what really are in the greater scheme of things, these small prayers and these petitions that we bring before him. And when we come to him in prayer, he reorients that. And what he does is remind us that it's hallowed be his name, that he's our father seated in heaven that we're talking to, the God, the creator of the universe, the one who is the ultimate ruler who has established the kingdom through his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. This is the God that we go to in prayer. This is the God that we commune with. So we don't just seek him to have him meet our expectations and fulfill our agendas in our life, but we seek him because what we know is that he knows what we need more than anything else. And so there's two things that I want to challenge you guys to pray with your families and your friends, your roommates this morning when we get done with this broadcast. Two things that I want you to pray for. One, I want you to celebrate the already. What has God done? Hallow his name this morning. What does he deserve to be praised and honored for in your life? And two, I think there's this awesome opportunity in prayer for us to cry out in the not yet. <laughs> like, don't be afraid to petition God for what's to come. I'll leave you with this. I was reading in Ephesians chapter 5 this week. And uh, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And I, I was praying for us in our current sort of cultural moment, the season that we find ourselves in um, right now. And I was praying for like, how is it God that we can make the most of our time? How is it God that in some translations say we can redeem the time that we find ourselves in? And I think prayer is one of the ways that we can actually do that, to be honest with you. But, but we also should be coherent of the battle that's actually going on around us. And we should celebrate what we know 
in who he is. And we should cry out for what's to come and what we want to see him do. And as he leads, we should go and do likewise, church. And so in this time and now, may we redeem this time. May we, may we make the best use of the time because as the scripture says, the days are evil. And God's wanting to redeem the here and now. And he's doing it through his church, through those, his people, those who call upon the name of Jesus and who live into this kingdom that's both not yet and already. So for any of you this morning that are out there that sort of need a touch of as above, so below this morning. For those of you out there that are just desperate and you, you want somebody to pray with you, I'd encourage you this morning, go to our website, fill out the prayer request form. Like we would love to petition God with you to come alongside of you and pray with you. But throughout this next week, remember those two things. How can you celebrate the already? And what does it look like for us to cry out in the not yet? And in the weeks to come, we'll continue to break down uh, the Lord's Prayer. And um, I, I just, I want you to be reminded over the next few weeks that um, though Jesus presents this prayer, it's not like a formula, but there's something really valuable in us memorizing it and working through it because it does reorient us and it puts our eyes, our hearts, our focus back on God himself and who he is and takes the focus off of ourselves. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that it does transform and change us. Um, God, but we thank you more, more importantly this morning for who you are as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you, Jesus, um, that you are the king that sits on the throne in heaven and that the God we pray to is just not some distant God, but you're here and you're near to us. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would be near to those who are tuning into this broadcast this morning. May they sense your nearness, God. For those that don't know you, I pray this morning, maybe there's just like a glimpse that they get into your nature and your character, who you are and how much you love them, Lord, that this morning you would just work in their hearts. Lord, for those of us who have continued to petition you for things day in and day out through the last two months as we've just faced battle after battle culturally, um, Lord, I just pray uh, Jesus, that there be this reorientation of our hearts and our minds this morning, God, that we would uh, begin to take the focus off of us and what we can get out of our prayer time with you and put the focus on you and your promises and your desire to uphold your promises. Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.